0: content warning. The following episode includes detailed discussion of illicit drug use. Listener discretion is advised. The 1980s were definitely the decade when society became obsessively concerned with threats to the safety of children. Stranger danger, satanic panic, street gangs, and the crack epidemic. There were pictures of kids on milk cartons, back when milk cartons were more popular than plastic milk jugs. Kids were told, don't take candy from strangers or you'll be a child killer's next victim or in some teenager's dungeon being sacrificed to Beelzebub. Stay away from street gangs, those thugs are not your family. These drug pushers are out here giving out free drugs, even stamps and candy with drugs on them, so watch out! Just say no to drugs. When I was growing up in Detroit, we had school assemblies where programs would visit and tell us some message aimed at diverting us away from the existential danger of the week. That wasn't any different than most cities around the country at the time, but we had something a little bit different than your typical DARE program or public service announcement. We had the blue pigs. And old, cause the crooks are getting mighty bold. You say you work 40 years, took a lot of heck and on the first of the month, you want your social security check. Well, my goodness. Mm. That check is your life, you know it's true. The kind man'll take it all away from you. There's a solution, it's the only way. Get direct deposit and don't delay. The Blue Pigs were a band made up of actual Detroit police officers and they would come to the schools in the area and perform, and shoot a message that we should stay away from crime, gangs, and drugs. I have no idea how effective the blue pigs were, but they were fun to watch as a little eight or nine-year-old kid, to be sure. And maybe that's the point, to stick this message into kids' heads, especially inner-city kids, read black kids, so that if they ever got tempted to go in the wrong direction in life, they would remember the band of cops with a tongue-in-cheek stage name. This was par for the course of the Reagan era, after-school specials and PSAs, and with that, the war on drugs continued. Yet behind this push to just say no was a war, to be sure, but the war was not as advertised. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Stirrer Podcast. Welcome to Potstar Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. Today's episode is the fourth in our series on the drug war. I've been looking forward to each of these episodes, because this is a topic with a deep history and such far-reaching consequences for so many individuals and families. But this period in the drug war is riveting, and so much of it involves terrible human Ronald Reagan. I discussed Reagan's approach to civil rights in the second part of my two parter on Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. earlier this year, episode 47, and went through some of the big reasons that Reagan was awful in the Terrible Humans Countdown, a Patreon bonus episode back in June of this year. Check that out, as well as other great bonus episodes from this and other Flying Machine Network podcasts. Go to slash support. So, we're going to focus on what I would call the Reagan era. Well, we're mostly going to focus on the 1980s. This era, the way I'm defining it, encompasses not only when Reagan was president, but bleeds into the presidencies of George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, both of whom took the mantle of drug warrior and expanded on what the Reagan era started. Now, let's briefly recap and talk about where we're at in the timeline. Last episode, the presidential administration of Richard Nixon spent the early part of the 1970s waging the war on drugs, including the creation of the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, and sweeping anti-drug legislation that consolidated existing anti-drug statutes and made it easier to create new ones. Out of this legislation came the Controlled Substances Act, which set into place drug schedules. Drug schedules classified and regulated drugs ostensibly based on the drug's safety, medical usefulness, and risk of dependency. But in reality, the drugs that Richard Nixon's presidency wanted to target most, cannabis and opioids such as heroin, were listed as Schedule I, meaning they were considered fully illicit. And according to John Ehrlichman, who was Nixon's domestic policy advisor, the reason these drugs were targeted was because they were associated with groups Nixon hated most, anti-war activists and the Black community. Ehrlichman claimed that the entire war on drugs was a ploy to discredit these groups, who were most vocal in opposing government policies in the 1960s and who criticized the Nixon administration's policies in the 1970s. Nixon's reign was cut short by the Watergate scandal, which led to his resignation in 1974. But while his presidency put up a heck of a fight against drugs, drugs were by no means gone once he was out of office. The 1970s was known as the glam decade. Flashy clothes, the glorification of the fast paced urban lifestyle, clubbing and dancing, disco, and mounds and mounds of cocaine. Cocaine, an addictive stimulant, was a controlled substance in the 1970s. But unlike weed or heroin, which were Schedule 1 drugs, cocaine was a Schedule 2 drug, meaning it was highly controlled, but not to the level of weed or heroin. In practice, the drug was widely available for those who could afford it. Because of its expense, this became the drug of choice, primarily for upper-class white Americans. And it was very popular to the point that cocaine paraphernalia, such as snorting straws, razor blades, spoons, mirrors, and scales, were being openly marketed in newspapers and magazines. We're talking ads that would say things like, quote, use a mirror to shave, but for truly exquisite snorting, the Frost-Aid Kit, a custom-made suede wallet with individually polished stone, amber glass vial and straw, blade, a stash pocket, and an extra pocket for your favorite spoon, end quote. Or here's another one, quote, go ahead, Elle Bandel presents Ivory Snow. Each of our exotic spoons, straws, and vials is delicately carved by skilled artisans from the finest center cuts of imported African ivory, the ideal Coke surface, end quote. Killing off an endangered species for a high? Oh God, people suck. But yeah, cocaine was quite popular at this point in time, and despite it being illegal, the enforcement of laws against cocaine wasn't exactly high-powered. Cocaine was the cool drug during its time, and nobody seemed to care, even the government. And in general, the war on drugs was somewhat relaxed. Between 1973 and 1977, 11 states voted to decriminalize cannabis. Also, on a federal level, one of Democratic candidate Jimmy Carter's presidential campaign promises in 1976 was to decriminalize cannabis, and in October 1977, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to decriminalize cannabis possession up to one ounce. But moves to relax drug laws would be short lived. In 1980, Ronald Reagan, a former B movie actor who had thrived in his second act as Republican governor of California, was elected to the presidency, defeating Democratic incumbent Jimmy Carter. Reagan's success in the 1980 election was partially because Americans had soured on Carter's presidency, marred by his hands on style of governance a downturn in the economy, and the 1979 Iranian hostage crisis. But Reagan's win was also a major success of the Southern strategy. The strategy executed throughout the 1970s by Republican operatives such as Lee Atwater and Roger Stone. Yes, that Roger Stone. (coughs) To guide Southern white conservatives into the GOP using veiled anti-Black rhetoric, dog whistles, to speak into their feelings of disillusionment with the Democratic Party's support of civil rights beginning in the mid-1960s. And Ronald Reagan, who opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and ran for his state governorship on a platform of opposing the Fair Housing Act, was the perfect candidate for the new and improved Republican Party. In addition to Reagan's long-standing opposition to civil rights for Black Americans, He shared with Republican predecessor Richard Nixon a love for law and order. Reagan's support for law and order policies, particularly surrounding the area of drug policy, would unfold similarly to drug warrior leaders such as Nixon and OG drug czar Harry Anslinger before him. Before coming out with the anti-drug laws, the public would be primed with anti-drug messaging. But in the 1980s, instead of just focusing on making adults fearful of what might happen if their children had access to drugs, they focused on marketing directly to the children. This was in the 1980s, and this period was known as the Decade of the Woman. And as such, Reagan's wife, First Lady Nancy Reagan, would be the face of the anti-drug crusade in the United States. Our young people are helping us lead the way. Not long ago, in Oakland, California, I was asked by a group of children what to do if they were offered drugs. And I answered, Just Say No. Soon after that, those children in Oakland formed a Just Say No club. And now, there are over 10,000 such clubs all over the country. Well, their participation and their courage in saying no needs our encouragement. We can help by using every opportunity to force the issue of not using drugs to the point of making others uncomfortable, even if it makes, meaning making ourselves, unpopular. The Just Say No campaign was an advertising campaign that began in the early part of the Reagan presidency, championed by the First Lady, aimed at encouraging children and teens to just say no to drugs focusing mostly on cannabis in the early years and later honing in on crack cocaine, which we'll get into why a bit later. She appeared in public service announcements and guest spots on popular TV shows such as Different Strokes and Dynasty with a just say no message. Along with Nancy Reagan's personal appearances, a series of PSAs aired during children's TV programming using hip and cool imagery to carry the Just Say No message to kids. This is much more important than facts and figures. What kids should know is that marijuana has got more cancer-causing agents than tobacco, and a lot of young kids use drugs on a daily basis. Actually, Michael, the fact is that one in 18 high school seniors smokes marijuana daily, and then there are the occasional users which account for... Get this through your CPU. They don't care about statistics. You know you're right. I've got it. Just tell them illegal drugs are bad. So don't mess with them. Illegal drugs are bad news. Don't mess with them. Now you could say beat it, get lost, get out of my face with that stuff. But that could be tactless. You may prefer cool like this. I'll get you guys later, okay? I've got too much homework. It's wrong. I'm late for my baseball game and I'll miss my ride. My kid's sister needs me. My hamster guy. There's no time to kill. So I'll catch you later. Like I'm she also enlisted the help of civic groups such as the Girl Scouts and Kiwanis Club, as well as the National Federation of Parents for Drug-Free Youth, now the National Family Partnership, to build out Just Say No Clubs and promote the Just Say No slogan nationwide. And like drug czar Harry Anslinger before her, Nancy Reagan couldn't quite contain her zeal for anti-drug propaganda within U.S. borders. The Just Say No campaign was also pushed internationally. The First Lady spoke to the United Nations, and she invited the First Ladies of 30 countries to the White House for an anti-drug summit. Yet many of the celebrities that were recruited at various points in time for the Just Say No campaign were themselves drug users. Actress Drew Barrymore was a spokeswoman for Just Say No during a period in her life where she was deep into cocaine addiction. Also, in 1985, the Reagan administration supported the creation of a music video called Stop the Madness, which was essentially a We Are the World type video with a bunch of musical artists and other celebrities appearing, except the message for Stop the Madness was explicitly anti-drug. Yet a number of celebrities that participated were users of illicit drugs. This included, but it wasn't limited to, Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown, while Bobby Brown was still part of New Edition. Also included was actor Stacey Keach, who got arrested for cocaine possession while in the UK shortly before the video was first released. Coming out of this federal emphasis on anti-drug rhetoric were programs on the state and local levels to eradicate drug use. One of the most famous, or infamous, depending on who you talk to, is D.A.R.E. D.A.R.E. stands for Drug Abuse Resistance Education. It is an educational program geared towards school aged children and teens, founded in Los Angeles in 1983 by then LAPD Police Chief Daryl Gates in the Los Angeles Unified School District. Gates was a devoted drug warrior, having said while speaking in front of the U.S. Senate, quote, Casual drug users should be taken out and shot. End quote. Also, like a lot of purveyors of the drug war, Gates held problematic views on race defending the higher death rates of black suspects from police chokeholds by claiming that black people's arteries were different than that of, quote, normal people, end quote. He wanted to develop a way to decrease drug use among young people beyond the LAPD's practice of using cops working undercover as students running sting operations to catch high schoolers looking to score drugs. This practice was drawing heat from groups such as the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU. so. DARE was formulated, and the idea was to bring police officers into schools to run classroom programs explicitly focused on keeping kids away from drugs. The program would entail pledges from minor participants to stay off drugs and participate fully in the program. And sessions held in the classroom where officers would teach children about illicit drugs and how to react in situations where drugs were made available. Also, the DARE officers were presented as a resource. So, if children knew of people in their lives involved in drugs, there was now someone in their lives they could trust to share this information with. DARE was, and is, considered a demand side program, meaning that decreasing demand for drugs among students would help to deal a blow to the drug trade, at least in theory. DARE programs expanded throughout the 1980s nationwide and later to several countries around the world. The program itself claims to be extremely effective. From the D.A.R.E. website, quote, This year, millions of school children around the world will benefit from D.A.R.E., Drug Abuse Resistance Education, the highly acclaimed program that gives kids the skills they need to avoid involvement in drugs, gangs, and violence. D.A.R.E. was founded in 1983 and has proven so successful that it has been implemented in thousands of schools throughout the United States and 50-plus other countries, end quote. But does D.A.R.E. actually work in its stated purpose, particularly keeping kids away from drugs? No, not really. Several peer-reviewed studies have been conducted among various disciplines that dispute the purported efficacy of D.A.R.E. According to a 2004 meta-analysis study in the American Journal of Public Health, conducted by counseling researchers Stephen West and Carrie O'Neill, The outcomes in terms of drug use for participants in DARE versus control participants, so non-participants with all else being roughly equal, were extremely small and not statistically significant. In other words, there were no real differences in drug use outcomes between DARE participants and non-DARE participants studied. This finding is also corroborated by a 2009 study published in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. Statisticians Wei Pan and Haiyan Bai evaluated the results of several previous studies on the effectiveness of DARE and found the effects to be, quote, less than small, end quote, meaning that it is largely ineffective and has room for improvement. But, Jay, these programs are adopted by so many schools, so many states, and even around the world. If these programs help one kid stay away from drugs and become productive members of society, isn't it all worth it? I get the sentiment that trying is better than not trying at all. But on the whole, I disagree. I would argue that these programs, in a number of ways, do more harm than good, and they keep us away from trying things that actually work. Let's start out by saying this. There were a number of issues with programs such as Just Say No and Dare. These programs, especially in the 1980s, employed simplistic scenarios aimed at helping kids know what to do when confronted with peer pressure to do drugs. It's one thing when Officer Friendly tells you, if some pusher says, here's some free drugs, scream, no, and run off to tell an adult. It's another when you're hanging out with your friends that you've known since kindergarten on a normal Saturday night, and out comes the bowl. And there's something insidious about the idea of making impressionable kids believe that police officers should be trusted officials. In this sense, if the same children found themselves in the clutches of chemical dependency, especially in the 1980s, the remedy to this was more often jail than treatment. So at the end of the day, the police were there to lock these kids up, not help them should they slip up. As children and teens with still developing brains, it's a big ask to expect them to pledge to not do drugs, lest there be consequences that are lifelong. I see this as similar to virginity pledges used in abstinence-only programs. Pledges for kids in general are not a great idea because the full understanding of long-term consequences takes time to develop in children. Also, critics point out that there is a bit of a narc element to programs like D.A.R.E. One of the elements of D.A.R.E. is that participants are encouraged to tell a trusted adult if they know anyone who uses drugs. It's one thing if they know of a classmate who regularly does meth. It's another if their parents happen to smoke a little bit of weed to calm their nerves at night But are contributing members of society who are otherwise law-abiding. In some cases, officers might even ask the classroom by a show of hands who knows someone who does drugs. And even though the program itself Claims that they do not encourage children to rat out their parents if they use drugs. The fact is that DARE officers, as sworn police officers, are mandated reporters, meaning that if they receive information that a child is in danger, they have to report what they have heard so it can be investigated by the police department. And a child having knowledge of parental drug use can fall under that, even if the parents are not displaying erratic behavior or abusing their children. There have been stories of families split up. Parents jailed and children sent to foster care over a home environment that may not have been detrimental at all. Critics view this as essentially a Big Brother situation where children involved in D.A.R.E. unwittingly function as extra eyes and ears for law enforcement, which from an individual and privacy rights standpoint is problematic. The other issue with government-supported drug education programs like Just Say No and D.A.R.E. is that much like in the decades preceding it, they haven't let facts get in the way of a good story. The negative effects of cannabis, in particular, were greatly exaggerated while its benefits were either downplayed or ignored. This was a reflection of where cannabis sits on a drug schedule, as a Schedule I drug, as well as decades of anti-cannabis propaganda. But this information isn't completely accurate. Now, cocaine is a harder drug, but again, the government was not being completely truthful about its effects especially when it came to certain forms of it, which we'll get into in a second. The point is, while I'm not out here saying that everyone should get high, there are real issues in terms of chemical and psychological dependency on certain drugs and negative side effects as well, especially when it comes to harder drugs. The government has often distorted and exaggerated what made certain drugs unsafe while downplaying or whitewashing the fact that drugs are often classed and treated differently by law enforcement, not based on medical science but based on political and social concerns. If the goal is to keep children from using drugs, it would be much better to involve the medical and scientific communities and do the research necessary to find out what really works in terms of keeping people from using drugs and getting them off of drugs, rather than embrace programs just because they were embraced by political actors. What would also help is to reevaluate the goal itself. There are people out here who do suffer from chemical and psychological dependency, including to illicit drugs, legal drugs, and alcohol, and it destroys the lives of themselves and their families. And there are often underlying reasons why people are addicted to substances. Treatment and counseling should be readily made available and easy to access, and barriers such as financial barriers and fear of legal repercussions should be removed that keep people from choosing recovery. The other thing to keep in mind is part of the reason why illicit drugs were and are in fact unsafe is that they are illicit. Much like what happened during prohibition, when something people enjoy recreationally is made illegal, it doesn't make it disappear from society. People find alternative avenues to get it. So this creates business opportunities for people who are willing to take huge risks for high financial reward, especially highly ambitious entrepreneurial people who may not have access to similar opportunities legally. And with having a black market for substances, there is no regulation, no watchdog, making sure that the drugs users receive are safe. So part of the danger in drug use is that drug users who are getting their drugs through illegal channels don't always know what they are paying for. And it's that black market, assisted by the federal government itself, That led to the epidemic that consumed American government and the news media throughout the 1980s into the next decade. So, hey, let's talk trees. No, not smoking them, planting them. Nick and John discussed the YouTube campaign to raise $20 million to plant 20 million trees in the latest from Stranger Still. It's definitely a noble environmental sentiment. Trees provide shade. A habitat for wild animals and produce oxygen for our planet. But is the hashtag Team Trees campaign viable? As always, it's a great episode about a thought provoking topic, so be sure to listen. Stranger Still is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. Or go to strangerstillshow.com for this and their awesome catalog of episodes. And for all the amazing podcasts, The Flying Machine. Go to flymachinenetwork shows. Today, the drug epidemic that has captivated the government on all levels, as well as the news media, is the opioid epidemic. Chemical dependency on prescription opiates, as well as illicit drugs such as heroin, has become a major issue in much of the U.S., not only in urban areas, but also in middle-class suburbs and rural towns. I live on the edge of Cincinnati, Ohio, closer to cows and horses than to the hustle and bustle of downtown. But in the last several years, plenty of signs can be seen on the side of the road in and around my neighborhood promoting treatment for people dependent on opioids. The news shares story after story of a person here, a couple there, found passed out from an overdose or even the occasional car accident because the driver was high. First responders are now routinely carrying Narcan, a drug that can be given to opioid users who OD, to help reverse their life-threatening overdose quickly. This helps bring them back, but unfortunately is not always successful. Politicians on both the right and left side of the aisle have spoken about addiction as an illness and have spoken sympathetically about people who are within the throes of addiction who are in need of professional treatment. While some drug scares are manufactured propaganda, such as Reefer Madness in the 1930s, some are real. And today's opioid crisis is one. In real life, drug epidemics are nothing new. There was another real life drug epidemic decades earlier in the 1980s that was also devastating in its effects. Yet government officials and the news media treated this epidemic and those who were in the midst of addiction much much differently. The 1970s was the glam decade, where cocaine was popular and readily available, but was not within reach for most Americans due to cost. But by the 1980s, the disco era was fading out, and cocaine, though still popular with Wall Street types in the upper crust, had flagged in popularity. There was a shortage of demand but there was no shortage of supply. Cocaine comes from the coca plant, which is cultivated in Central and South America. In the 1980s, the Cold War was still in full swing, and US foreign policy was still governed by the aim of fighting communism and any ideologies that neighbored it. So the Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA, was responsible for having coca fields burned in countries run by leftist leaders, under the guise of both fighting communism and blaming those countries for drug use in the U.S. Yet the U.S. government funded right-wing governments and movements, including the Contras in Nicaragua, who were also cultivating coca crops for cocaine production. Another influential group in Latin America was, and is, the Medellin Cartel, a powerful Colombian drug cartel that at one point worked with U.S.-based businesses with interests in the region. The impact of the drug war, as well as the Cold War, on Latin American countries can be its own series. So I don't want to get too far in the weeds here. Just know that the U.S. government knew where cocaine was coming from and how it was getting in. How the U.S. fought the drug war overseas was extremely inconsistent, but that was in order to serve U.S. corporate interests, as well as that of fighting communism during the Cold War. Now, of course, if you have a lot of supply, But not a lot of demand a way to balance that out is to increase demand cocaine in its powder form is costly and to significantly drop the price would reduce profits but if the drug was cut being diluted with baking soda and dissolved in water it would harden into rock form users could heat it up and smoke it and that would provide a quick and powerful high this form of cocaine is referred to as crack named for the crackling sound the drug is said to make when heating up. And with this being a diluted form of cocaine, crack could be sold much more cheaply than powder cocaine. And this meant that cocaine, in crack form, was accessible to a larger group of people, including people of a lower socioeconomic status. This was post-civil rights movement, post-urban riots, post-Nixon drug war, and urban communities that were dealing with the fallout from all these factors were reeling. In a lot of urban centers throughout the 1970s and early 1980s, especially in the Midwest and Northeast, factories that were the lifeblood of these cities were closing up shop, moving the suburbs and smaller towns on their way to being shipped overseas, where companies could legally pay the workforce a lot less. This further devastated these communities, and there were young people growing up with few opportunities to support themselves or their families. Crack arrived on U.S. shores, first in Miami's Caribbean immigrant neighborhoods, brought in by drug mules that were tied to the Latin American drug cartels, and made it into urban communities of color, where street gangs, mostly composed of young Black and Latino men and boys, were the ones taking the reins on the drug trade within the neighborhoods. The drug trade, with drugs like the increasingly popular crack being sold by rival street gangs, led to increased violence in these communities, wars over turf. It wasn't about possessing a block they didn't own, as comedians at the time liked to joke about. It was about claiming territory to lock down their customer base. And as a quick aside on this, over the decades, there have been a number of reporters and political officials, as well as activists, that have alleged that the CIA assisted the drug cartels in funneling crack cocaine to black neighborhoods in the early 1980s and jumpstarting the crack epidemic. Three congressional investigations took place in the late 1990s, but this narrative was never confirmed. There was no John Ehrlichman spilling the tea. Considering the history of bad acts by the federal government towards the black community when it comes to drugs over the previous several decades, which we've discussed over the course of this series, as well as documented instances of the government deliberately harming people of color, such as the Tuskegee experiments on black men and the forced sterilization of black, Latina, and Native American women during much of the 20th century, it's not a stretch to suggest that the CIA could have had a hand in the concentration of crack in black communities. Without being able to substantiate this, I don't want to present this as fact so let me be clear, I'm not saying that this is true. But I did want to mention it because it came up quite a bit in my research as widely held belief within the black community and the claim was considered credible enough to warrant three investigations. So it's hard to tell the story without at least mentioning this aside. But in any case, regardless of how crack made it into these neighborhoods, the fact of the matter was it had a certain appeal. The drug was cheap and it provided a quick high, so crack took hold primarily in poorer urban neighborhoods. It also helped that a number of people in these neighborhoods became dealers, as there were fewer opportunities to support themselves legally. Between 1982 and 1986, the number of cocaine users increased by 1.6 million people. By 1986, during Ronald Reagan's second term, which he won in a landslide, The crack epidemic was leading the news. But those affected, those addicted to crack, were not portrayed as sympathetic characters in need of treatment. They were often called junkies and crackheads, scourges and leeches on society, addicts who would steal, kill, and destroy for their next fix, a danger to children. The stories about decaying urban neighborhoods, broken families, and crack babies... Commonly ran in newspapers, magazines, and the evening news, with the blame being squarely placed on the capricious, selfish drug addicts willing to do anything for that next high. These crack addicts were using an illegal drug, and the best way to deal with these criminals wasn't treatment. Oh no, that's being soft on crime. Nope, send them to jail and throw away the key. You see, Unlike opioid addicts of today who are largely white and live in suburban or rural areas. Crack addicts in the 1980s were mostly urban and black. 80% of crack users in the 80s were black. Yet then as it is now, rates of illicit drug use as a whole were not statistically different between black and white Americans. The difference wasn't in drug use or even drug dealing, but in drugs of choice. What drugs they had access to, what drugs were being bought by whom, and sold by whom. Such a common theme in America's drug war. History just continued to repeat itself. 1986 was a huge year for anti-drug legislation. The crack epidemic was still huge news. And one of the most high-profile stories related to drugs was that of Len Bias. was a talented college basketball star who played for University of Maryland and was a huge NBA prospect. He was drafted second overall by the Boston Celtics in the 1986 draft held on June 17th of that year and he was expected to be a game changer in the league but he never got a chance to play in the NBA. Less than 48 hours later in the early morning hours of June 19th 1986 Len Bias had died From a seizure and cardiac arrhythmia caused by use of cocaine. In response to the news stories about the ravages of illicit drug use and public uproar about the crack epidemic, a bipartisan Congress passed and Reagan signed into law a major omnibus bill, the Anti Drug Abuse Act of 1986. The Anti Drug Abuse Act allocated $1.7 billion, nearly $4 billion in today's money, to fight the war on drugs. Mostly through law enforcement, as the focus of this legislation was aimed at shifting the aims of anti drug sentencing from being rehabilitative to punitive. The act made money laundering a crime. It also increased the number of drug related offenses eligible for mandatory minimum sentences, which included not only cocaine and opiates, but cannabis as well. Under this law, a mandatory life sentence would be handed down to a drug dealer if drugs they had sold caused the death of the user. This provision was called the Limb-Bias Law. In addition, the mandatory sentencing guidelines in the Anti-Drug Abuse Act included a provision that imposed a mandatory five-year sentence on those convicted of possessing five grams of crack cocaine. One would have to possess 500 grams of powder cocaine to get the same sentence. This amounted to a 100 to 1 ratio of powder cocaine versus crack cocaine meaning that it would take the possession of 100 times the amount of powder cocaine for someone to be sentenced to the same amount of time as someone convicted of a certain amount of crack cocaine. Ostensibly, the reason for the disparity in sentencing was to stem the tide of the crack epidemic. The case was made that crack cocaine was several times more addictive than powder cocaine, leading to more violence in urban communities. But there is no medical or scientific basis for the idea that crack is more addictive or more dangerous than powder cocaine. But those pesky facts. And not too far beneath the surface was a racial and class disparity. Powder cocaine was still the drug of choice primarily for wealthy white Americans, but crack cocaine was a drug of choice for black Americans, particularly in impoverished communities. It was cheap, but providing a quick and powerful high, the coke of the masses. But unlike Your son or daughter who just stumbles into illicit drugs who just needs treatment. Black people who also had families and were someone's son or daughter weren't worthy of such a sympathetic portrayal. Black Americans, especially those in urban centers, were the them rather than the us. Of course, Black men were demonized as dangerous, same crap, different day, and even more dangerous under the spell of certain drugs of choice. And the only thing that would make Everyone's safe is to lock them up. And much like in the anti-abortion, save the babies movement of today, where black women were being framed as bad mothers for aborting their fetuses, regardless of the situation they're in while pregnant, black women during the 1980s were framed as bad mothers by both politicians and the media, portrayed as welfare queens, leeches on the government, giving birth to several kids with no father in the home so they could collect a check every first of the month. And now, with the crack epidemic, tack on black women as junkies who can't even stop getting their fix long enough to give their babies a fighting chance. The mandatory sentencing guidelines also targeted low level drug dealers, who were more likely to possess crack than powder cocaine, which meant that black and Latino Americans were often profiled by law enforcement, drawing the bulk of convictions and the longest sentences. And when it came to the crack epidemic, treating it as a public health issue with an approach that would provide dependent users an avenue to recovery, was pretty much out of the question. Instead, the way to deal with it was through the criminal justice system and incarceration. This 101 disparity existed for nearly a quarter century, where the powder-to-crack cocaine disparity was decreased to to 18-to-1 with the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010. So, to this day, sentencing is still not equal for the same substance just formulated differently to be made available to different groups of people. That same year, the Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act was also signed into law. This law made schools drug-free zones with a zero-tolerance policy for any drugs or alcohol found on school grounds. This led to resource officers, actual cops, being stationed inside of public schools. And this had effects that go beyond making sure kids don't have access to drugs while learning their ABCs. Having police officers in schools have led to students being arrested on school grounds, not only for drug offenses, but also other incidents that would otherwise just land a kid in the principal's office, such as temper tantrums or talking back in class. And going along with this, there have been several incidents of police brutality against children and teens linked to cops on school grounds. This has also been cited as the genesis of the school-to-prison pipeline. The criminalization of garden variety school misbehavior leading to a disproportionate number of young black and Latino people to enter the criminal justice system. I'm sure I've mentioned this before on the show, but it bears repeating. Once you're known to law enforcement in the criminal justice system, it's near impossible to escape. After Reagan's two terms in office, his vice president, George H.W. Bush, was elected to the presidency in 1988. In 1990, the federal drug paraphernalia law was passed, which made drug paraphernalia, anything that could be used to facilitate drug use, illegal, even if drugs themselves were not in a person's possession. Earlier in the episode, I gave examples of ads from the 1970s where cocaine paraphernalia was explicitly advertised. But with this law, as well as similar laws on the state level, such ads would now be made illegal. Both individuals And store owners in possession of drug paraphernalia as judged by government could be prosecuted. That's why if you go into a head shop, you don't call a bong a bong, but a water pipe. Bongs are for weed, water pipes are for tobacco. But this was yet another way that the war on drugs targeted people, especially the poor and people of color, for arrest and incarceration. Yet another law made for breaking. In 1992, Bill Clinton. Then Governor of Arkansas defeated Bush in the 1992 presidential election, running on a centrist Democratic third way platform, but helped by the third party run of Texas billionaire businessman H. Ross Perot. Clinton, though a Democrat, continued the war on drugs that his Republican predecessors championed. Key is the 1994 crime bill. While the crime bill didn't specifically focus on drug offenses, it expanded mandatory minimums further and expanded prisons, further contributing to mass incarceration and the disproportionate targeting and incarceration of Black and Latino people for a number of offenses, including drug-related crimes. But during the 1990s, crack use decreased, and the crack epidemic as a period in U.S. history was over. But the effects of this era were much longer lasting. Due to this era of restrictive drug laws, the number of people locked up for nonviolent drug-related offenses increased from 40,000 people in 1980 to over 400,000 people by 1997. Today, 47% of federal inmates as well as 15% of state-level inmates are in prison for drug-related offenses, and those locked up for drug-related offenses have been disproportionately Black even though the rate of drug use among Black Americans is statistically the same as that of whites. The crack epidemic and the government's tough-on-crime approach to the crisis further destabilized Black communities in particular as a disproportionate number of Black people, especially Black men, were targeted for nonviolent drug-related offenses and essentially removed from their families, creating the very broken families that politicians and media blamed on inner city culture little was done in the way of treatment for people who became addicted to crack it was pretty much jail so there were few resources for crack users to successfully pursue recovery and this not black women being bad mothers led to babies being born addicted to crack and other health and social issues that came from crack use and little was done to provide young people in these communities with viable legal avenues to pursue for success which led way too many to join gangs sell drugs and have their lives cut way too short by jail or by the wrong end of a gun and the mass criminalizing of people of color especially black americans has had even more long-term costs it has led to a sizable percentage of black men with felony records for non-violent drug offenses felony convictions make it much more difficult to find legal employment this perpetuates the cycle. It perpetuates the income and wealth gap that disadvantages Black Americans and also contributes to recidivism. In other words, reoffending and returning to prison. It also suppresses the voting power of the Black community, as in many states, felons are not allowed to vote, even after being released from incarceration or monitoring by the penal system. This is referred to as felony disenfranchisement. And the drug war, especially the profiling of black urban residents by local, state, and federal law enforcement, ratcheted up during the Reagan era, is a huge factor as to why nearly a third of black men have felony convictions. While the war on drugs in the 1980s and 90s brought about shiny new laws and shinier propaganda, it focused on profiling the same familiar targets, It led to billions of taxpayer money wasted on programs and punitive measures that were ineffective, as well as the phenomenon of mass incarceration and prison overpopulation. And it did not make our society any safer. Next time will be the final episode in the America's Drug War series, where I'll take a look at the state of the war on drugs today. I'll discuss the opioid epidemic more in depth, in particular how big business and the proliferation of legal drugs more powerful than some of the illicit ones led to the current drug crisis. I'll also discuss the push to legalize cannabis for medical and recreational purposes. Plus, why more and more Americans are openly asking if the war on drugs has been lost. That will be coming in the next two weeks. Thank you very much for listening to Potstorger Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download, and the links will be right there. If you subscribe, which is for free, you can get new episodes once they come out, so you won't miss them. If you find this podcast knowledgeable or informative, Please give us 5 stars and leave a review. That encourages other people to find and listen to the podcast. And follow me on Twitter at Pot cast I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.